and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible or not-so-possible future scenario. We always start with a little field trip to the future to check out what's going on, and then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that world that we just heard might really go down. Got it? Great. This episode, we're starting in the year 2078. Ladies and gentlemen in the boarding area, Welcome to port 334 from Miami to Hong Kong. Please remember to have your passports ready for inspection, along with your boarding pass, as you enter the gateway. We'll begin the port process in about 10 minutes. Good afternoon, passengers. This is the pre-boarding announcement for port 334 to Hong Kong. We're now inviting those passengers with small children and any passengers requiring special assistance to begin boarding at this time. Please have your boarding pass and identification ready. Please remember that children over the age of five must go through the port by themselves. Children under the age of five can port with a parent. Good afternoon, sir. Ticket, please. Thank you. Welcome, Mr. Nesmith. Is this your first time porting? <laughs> is that obvious? It's normal to be nervous. Don't worry, the port is extremely safe. You'll be in Hong Kong in under seven seconds. What does it feel like? Mm, it's a bit like when your hand falls asleep. Your body will feel numb, but not painful, just a bit odd. Remember to breathe and keep your eyes closed. Hmm, why? It's not dangerous to open your eyes or anything. It just tends to make people pretty dizzy. Don't worry, it's completely safe. Are you ready? Sure, I guess. Excellent. Step on in. Stand with your feet on the little dots there. Great. Remember to breathe and enjoy Hong Kong. Okay, you've asked for it, and who am I to stand between you loyal listeners and your apparent obsession with teleportation? Today, we are talking about matter transmission, quantum entanglement, and what might happen if we could actually move human bodies through space in an instant. Teleportation is a staple of science fiction. I don't even really need to list all the places that it shows up since you're already probably imagining your favorite example. Mine is from Galaxy Quest. Jason, we're going to use the digital conveyor to get you out of there. The digital conveyor? Yeah. Diced into cubes, can sit up there in a million pieces? Right. Well, you know what? I think I'll take my chance with Gorignac. We're getting you out right now. It's perfectly safe, isn't it, Ted? It has never been successfully tested. But the animal is inside out. I heard that. It turned inside out? And it exploded. Or take this short animation from The Nib. 
Relax, teleportation is completely safe and simple. It just takes your atoms, zips them over to a second location, and reassembles them exactly as they were. No, it makes a copy of you after completely vaporizing your original body. It kills the real you. <laughs> if it's the exact same arrangement of molecules, then it's me. That's who me is. No, these things pop out a clone with all your memories Next and Next up, Disneyland. Whoa, whoops! <laughs> oh boy, it keeps doing that. I'll just make a new, more uh, traditional copy. Don't even know you're a clone. Oh, that was fine. <laughs> Told you. Uh, by the way, you might want to get your pancreas checked out. That's like the actual, basically, transcript of a conversation me and Matt Boris have constantly, like all the time. This is Matt Lubchansky. And I'm a cartoonist and associate editor at The Nib. Not only is Matt a cartoonist and the associate editor at The Nib, they are also the person who draws the episode art for Flash Forward. If you didn't know, every episode of Flash Forward comes with a really cool illustration, which you can see on social media or on the website. And every few weeks, I send Matt an email listing the upcoming episodes so they can draw these illustrations. And when I sent them the list for the last five episodes of this season, which included teleportation, they wrote back, quote, If you need an expert to come on and talk about how teleportation 100% kills you and makes a clone, I'm your gal. My theory 100% is, I mean, for teleportation, the real thing that already exists, obviously, there's no way that they're actually transporting your actual atoms across the universe or, you know, across uh, time and space. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So there's, there's, they, they have to be basically destroying your physical form and rebuilding a copy of it, in including your memories up to the moment that you were killed. You're murdered. You're, you're murdered and reconstituted as a new person with your old memories and nobody knows, including you. But you never know you're a clone? Is that like how this goes? Yeah, like, I mean, it's like you never you never know that you are a reconstituted version of, like, you're a copy of your atoms with your memories. Is this like what deja vu is? But yes, 100%. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Now, is it bad to be a clone, though? See, that's the question. It's like, if you don't know, who cares? So, like, does it, does it matter? I think so, a little bit. I think it's kind of terrible because you're actually dead and nobody knows it. Right, you didn't even have a funeral. Right. And everyone thinks I'm alive. And I think I'm, you know, that copy of me thinks it's me. And this theory doesn't stop with just murdering and cloning you. No, no, no. That is not all. It gets even darker. So like, you, so say Amazon invents teleportation or, or Apple or whatever. It's definitely going to be Amazon. Yeah. So it's Amazon, right? They invent the teleporter and you go to teleport yourself. And even if it's real, even if it doesn't kill you and transport your data and then reconstitute your guts and your lab-grown meat forever and don't know it, nobody knows it, and you're dead and you don't get a funeral, even if that doesn't happen, and I'm wrong, Amazon still has you that they could make a copy of. Like, why you're giving your entire genetic code to Amazon and your memories and everything. So, like, maybe Amazon's just got a copy of you now that they could do whatever they want with. Clone army. Clone army. For when Jeff Bezos decides to seastead a new uh, a new libertarian country in the Pacific Ocean somewhere. It would you if you could sign like if you could teleport, would you do it even knowing that like you're going to be murdered and cloned? Absolutely not. Like all your friends are like, yo, we're going to Six Flags. Get in here. And you're like, nope. All my friends are now dead and I'm taking the bus to meet the clones of my friends at Six Flags to go on the rides. I don't even want to go on because I have a heart condition, Rose. I can't go on the rides. 
One upside to this is that you basically win every argument with your friends now because you can just be like, you're not even my real friend. You're a clone. They're, they're not going to be like, oh, you're right. I'm dead. I'm a clone. Like no one's going to no one wants to admit that they're really stupid and that they killed themselves to ride the Joker in New Jersey. Wait, you know, the Joker's a great ride. The Joker is a great ride. I will say that. But would you kill yourself for it? I don't know. OK, so joking aside, Matt is actually not wrong about the physics of teleportation. We want to convert that by sort of entangling you with another set of particles in your lab, um, at which point you would be destroyed. So I don't know whether, you know, you really want to take part in that experiment in the first place. This is Zia Morali. She's a physicist and journalist who works at the Foundational Questions Institute, which is a very good name for something. She's also the author of a recent book called A Big Bang in a Little Room. And Zia is going to help us understand the physics of teleportation and why it's not really possible for human-sized things. Or even most non-human-sized things. Like even a pen is too big to try. They're kind of excited at the moment with teleporting, you know, one particle, sort of, or not, you know, information from one particle, I should say. So, you know, I, I think a pen is a little bit ambitious. Pens are already pretty complicated pieces of engineering. Before we get into the physics, I should say that there are a couple of ways that science fiction tends to talk about teleportation. Sometimes it's conveyed as a wrinkle in time, a wormhole of some kind that you can step through to get from one place in the universe to another instantly. That's not the kind of teleportation we're talking about today. Another related version is the Nightcrawler version of teleportation. Marvel suggests that Nightcrawler moves through space by actually jumping to his own alternate dimension and then jumping back out. We're not talking about that one either, and it's also not really possible. Philosophers like to talk about teleportation via clone, where your body is scanned and reassembled elsewhere. And now there are two of you. The first one is not murdered. And you have to figure out which one is the real you. That's not the kind we're talking about today either. Instead, we are talking about teleportation via quantum entanglement. It's a bit more like the Star Trek version. A machine scans your body and then uses that information to reassemble it elsewhere. I would have to have in my lab sort of a, a lump of particles that sort of have the same mass as you and the same number of particles as you. And then that information would be transmitted or teleported over to my lab to kind of recreate you here. So how does this work? Before we can understand the entanglement part of quantum entanglement, we actually have to start with that first word, quantum. The quantum world is tiny, super, super small, things like subatomic particles. You know, when we're talking about subatomic particles, when we're talking about the quantum world, so this is the world where quantum laws apply, things are really strange. So, for example, at the quantum level, something can actually be in two states at the same time, or even two places at the same time. So if you're not looking at it, it can be doing something very strange, like it can be spinning in a clockwise and an anti-clockwise direction simultaneously. You might have heard of Schrodinger's cat, which is this thought experiment that goes like this. Let's say you have a cat in a box. Also inside that box is a sealed flask of radioactive material and a Geiger counter. If the Geiger counter registers radioactivity, it shatters the flask, which releases the poison, which kills the cat. When the box is closed, and you're looking at it from the outside, 
you do not know if the cat is alive or dead. And in quantum terms, before you open the box, the cat is both alive and dead. It is only in looking at the cat that it lives or dies. This is admittedly a kind of weird thought experiment, but it's the one that a lot of people know. Here is a less morbid example. You know, you could imagine that I toss a coin and it lands on my hand and I cover it up. Before I look at it, at that point, it's in both a sort of a heads up and a tails up state at the same time. But when I remove my hand and I look at it, sort of bang, then it chooses one or the other to be. And at that point, it's either heads or tails. Now, neither the cat nor the coin actually behave in a quantum way. These are just analogies. The point is that when we talk about quantum stuff, things are really strange. And another element of quantum strangeness is entanglement. So we can take two particles and we can prepare them in a special way in the lab. And this is something that physicists have been doing for many years now. Um, and what happens is they kind of become twinned together. And they form this kind of really special bond, which means that whenever you measure the properties of one of them, the other one kind of has an instantaneous reaction and changes its own properties too. Once these particles are entangled, they are effectively identical. If one particle changes, the other one changes to match. I'm in London and you're in the US somewhere. And let's say we've got two entangled coins. Um, and we decide that, you know, at a certain time, we're both going to toss them at exactly the same point. So we toss both of our coins and we don't look at them. And then I look at mine and I say, oh, it's heads up. And without you having to look at yours, I know that yours is heads up. And if I tell you that mine is heads up, you know yours is heads up. The coins, once they are entangled, are always going to be in the same state. And in theory, this connection can span an unlimited distance. So last year, um, a Chinese group set the record where they had one entangled particle in their lab in China and they sent, you know, its entangled twin in, on a satellite um, into space um, 300 miles above the Earth. And then they teleported successfully information from one to the other. Now, this coin example is already outside the realm of possibility. Coins are too big and too complicated to entangle. So far, scientists have only done this with tiny, tiny things. Just sort of bits of information about the states of, for instance, photons, so particles of light, which in a way isn't the most exciting piece of information, I guess, that, you know, you might want to get. But, it, but it's kind of um, a proof that you can get some information from here to there. And it's this entanglement that allows for teleportation, at least on a very small scale. So let's go back to our coin example. Let's say Zia has her coin in London, I have my coin in California, and they are entangled. Anything that happens to her coin immediately happens to mine and vice versa. Now, let's say that she wants to use that entanglement to teleport something to me. If I take that thing and I entangle it with my end of the quantum telephone line, I change the properties of my particle that's in my lab in my hand, and instantaneously, your particle, which is entangled with my one in your lab in the US, changes too. So if Zia entangles her coin with another thing, 
That information is instantly communicated to my coin via the weird and wonderful world of quantum physics. And so that means that without you and I having to communicate in any conventional way, you can now do experiments on your entangled particle and read off information about the third particle that I wanted to tell you about from London. And that's basically it. That's the teleportation, not physically teleporting the particle, but teleporting the information to you across the world sort of instantaneously. And, as we said before, it destroys the original. Somewhere along the way, through the process of me entangling my particles and conveying information in my lab, and then you getting it to your lab, it kind of destroys the information. Um, So once you've got it and you've picked it up there, I lose it here. The you that's you on the phone to me right now would just kind of dissolve into a sort of mush once that information is transmitted. And you're just hoping that at my end, another version of you is recreated. So for this to work in humans, you would need to A, be able to get every piece of information about every single atom in your body down to the teeniest, tiniest subatomic particle, which is already basically impossible. But then B, you would need to entangle all of that with something. And C, wherever that entangled bit's counterpart was, you would need on hand the exact amount of material that makes up the human being scanned so they can be reassembled. And you had better hope that all of this works perfectly because there is no going back. The original you is destroyed. There are quite a few places this could go very badly wrong where, you know, you might turn up, but you turn up without an arm because I don't have, you know, the right number of particles on my end to pick up, you know, all of the information that's coming over from you over there. And if that's not enough, this connection only really works once. It also breaks our telephone line. So we'd have to just kind of have multiple telephone lines to convey multiple kind of uh, multiple sets of information about different particles. So teleportation of human beings, murder clones or otherwise, is almost certainly never going to happen. But let's suspend disbelief for a little while longer so we can finish this episode, because when we come back, we're going to talk about what teleportation might mean for workers, cities, politics, urban design, and more. What does a world look like when where we live and where we work is decoupled? What happens if we no longer need cars or planes or trains? All that and more after this quick break. Okay, so let's refine this hypothetical a little bit, just for fun. Let's say teleportation of people were possible. Its impact would then depend on how affordable it was. If teleportation is like air travel, that's different from saying that it's like trains or public transit, which is different from saying that it's like bike shares with stations all over. And of course, if it was affordable enough for everybody to have them in their homes, then that's a radically different future from the one we have now. So for the rest of this episode, we're going to go down the hypothetical road that says that teleportation is as expensive as keeping, driving, and maintaining a car. So what happens next? Well, first, nobody would need cars. That's huge! Today, in the United States alone, there are over 276 million registered vehicles. 
Somewhere around 2010, experts estimate that we passed the 1 billion vehicle mark worldwide. If nobody needed a car to get to work or the grocery store or their kids' dance recital, that would have a huge impact on everything from the economy to the built environment. No more giant parking structures. No more highways. American cities would no longer be built around cars. And to understand what that might be like, we have to turn to history to understand how it happened in the first place. I would call this the most elaborate and successful public relations campaign of all time. This is Peter Norton. He's a historian at the University of Virginia and an expert in the early history of cars and roads. So to understand what cities might be like without cars, we have to go back to the early 1900s. So the street was a public space. It was a lot like, let's say, a crowded city park where you can pretty much do whatever you want, provided you don't endanger other people or make a nuisance out of yourself. People felt like they could walk anywhere they wanted. People thought they could let their children go wherever they wanted on their own. Then the car arrived. Now, it's easy to look at the way roads and cities are set up today and think, of course, cars are so much more dangerous and powerful, and of course, they should have the right of way. But in fact, that wasn't a given. When cars started claiming space on the roads and killing people, the backlash was immediate and one-sided. Everybody blamed the car because it was the newcomer, it was the intruder. So of course it made sense that, you know, that was the cause of the problem, not people walking where they wanted to because that's the way it had always been. The courts also sided with walkers, not drivers. The court cases are fascinating because they're so different from the way they would go today. And the judges almost unanimously are very clear at that transition period that it doesn't matter where the pedestrian is, it's no excuse uh, that they were not in the crossing. If you hit and injure or kill them, you, the driver, are at fault because you're the one who chose to operate this dangerous equipment in the street. Both legally and socially, there was this real feeling that cars in cities are bad and that the drivers of those cars are bad and reckless. They even invented words for these drivers, disparaging words. They called them joyriders and pleasure cruisers, spoiled, bratty people who cared nothing for their fellow city dwellers. There's even a scene in a 1910 book called Tom Swift and His Motorcycle that pits our hero, Tom Swift, against his arch-rival, this rich jerk named Andy Foger. Tom Swift is riding along on his bicycle, and his nemesis, Andy Foger, comes along on a motorcycle and forces Tom Swift off the road, and he ends up in a ditch, and they have an argument. Side note, I grew up reading an old set of Tom Swift books that my dad had, and I was obsessed with this series as a kid. My favorite was from the 1950s run of Tom Swift books, Tom Swift and His Diving Sea Copter. I'm not totally sure the series holds up today, though. Anyway, back to Tom in a ditch yelling at Andy. Tom Swift makes the argument that the street's for everybody and he ought to be able to go around safely uh, using the street for what it's for. And Andy Foger makes the argument that it's a new age, a new era, uh, the motor age. And in this new motor age, you have to adapt, right, or get left behind. For those who aren't familiar with the Tom Swift series, this is especially interesting because Tom Swift's whole thing is that he's this wonderkind inventor type. Most Tom Swift books are full of boundless enthusiasm for new technology. 
The book series includes Tom Swift and his giant telescope, Tom Swift and his wizard camera, and Tom Swift and his ocean airport. But cars, cars were too much. And Swift's argument with Foger really summed up the state of the debate in 1910. That's a wonderful distillation of not only the struggle over the future of the street and the city, but over whether technology is something that we put to our purposes to use uh, as we as we want for our own chosen goals, or is it something that we have to all adapt to or get left behind? Then something happened that really mobilized the auto industry to start actively campaigning against pedestrians. In 1923, 42,000 people signed a petition in Cleveland. For a city traffic ordinance or city rule that would require all cars that are licensed to operate in the city to be equipped with a mechanical speed governor, this would make it impossible for the car to go faster than 25 miles an hour. If they couldn't get rid of cars, pedestrians were going to try to do everything they could to make them slow and undesirable to drive. And this reflected the view that the car is the intruder, and if you want to make streets safer, then you have to restrict the car, not the pedestrian. Motordom, and that is in fact what they called themselves, Motordom, had been watching the court cases and the public outcry. But this petition was what really got them into gear. Sorry. Basically, they realized that at this rate, they were not going to be able to sell cars in cities. And they definitely wanted to sell cars in cities. And that's actually how they put it themselves. I'm not putting that language on them. They said it's going to be hard to sell cars in cities unless we change what people think streets are for. And they set out to do exactly that. And they were very good at it. First, they came up with a new word for a pedestrian who was in the street. And this is where the term jaywalking really takes off. The term jaywalking comes from the word jay. A jay in the America of a century ago was a term of ridicule, really an offensive term of ridicule for an ignorant rural person. We might say hick today, but it was really sharper than that. It was was like rube or hayseed or something like this. So a jaywalker was someone who was so backwards, so hickish, so stupid, that they didn't know how to walk properly in a city. It was really picked up and propagated beginning about 1910 by motordom as a way to convince pedestrians not to walk in the street. Motordom created posters and public service announcements and cartoons ridiculing these backwards jaywalkers and reminding people that they should cross only at crosswalks and never diagonally. You could see campaigns against it in Kansas City in 1911, 1912. Syracuse, New York picked it up in a big way in 1913. In 1923, cards were distributed around New York City by the Bureau of Public Safety that said, in all caps, Do you know you are guilty of jaywalking when you cross streets carelessly? Not only did they distribute promotional material, motordom also convinced newspapers to inadvertently help them promote the idea that pedestrians in the street are always at fault for any injuries that they might sustain. In 1924, the National Automobile Chamber of Commerce, which was a trade association that represented car manufacturers, started going to newspapers and being like, hey, we are super kind and generous and we are here to offer you a free news service. They, had, they, they offered newspapers the following arrangement. You send us everything that happens in your town. We'll collect all the data from all the cities and then report back to you with uh, professionally written reports on the accident problem. 
Unsurprisingly, those reports always seemed to favor the driver. They always seemed to say that the problem here was the walkers, the people in the street, not the cars. And the newspapers published these reports. The newspapers were happy to have them because they didn't have to pay a reporter to get them. And this press offensive worked perfectly. And it's quite amazing turnaround. You can see the word proliferate in word counts from digitized historic databases. The word is pretty rare until about 1924, and then it really takes off. This happened so quickly that even people at the time noticed. A New York City traffic magistrate wrote a column for the New York Times and says, "Uh, I don't understand it, but all of a sudden the newspapers are all blaming pedestrians instead of drivers. By 1930, motordom had tipped the odds in their favor. They basically wrote the 1925 L.A. Traffic Ordinance, and they had a hand in setting up the way that traffic signals are timed. And at some point, as a pedestrian, it is hard to fight back against cars. Even if you're a pedestrian who doesn't agree, you kind of have to give up because you, you can't cross a busy street with fast-moving cars and a lot of traffic wherever you want, even if you think it's the right thing to do because it's just not safe anymore. Even today, when you read about crackdowns on jaywalking in L.A. or New York City, the messaging is the same as what motordom used in the 1920s. Appeals to safety and a reminder that the streets are not for people. There's another chapter here to the jaywalking story, and that's about how while jaywalking was used to push people out of the streets, it was also being used to criminalize certain people more than other people. Jaywalking tickets are given, let's say, disproportionately. Take Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, a town that is predominantly white, for example. 89% of the people in Champaign-Urbana who are ticketed for jaywalking are people of color. The result of the car taking over the street is huge. Cities are now designed for cars, and American behavior reflects that. In Atlanta, for example, the average person travels 34.1 miles in a car every day. According to one study I read, just 1% of the trips Americans take are on a bike, and only 9% are by foot. And that's because for the most part, cities and suburbs are not designed to be biked or walked. Compare that to the Netherlands, the magical land of the bike, where 30% of all trips are on bicycle and 18% are on foot. And it's not just that America is bigger and the distances between places are bigger. It's also that even if you wanted to bike or walk in the United States, there often isn't a safe way to do so. Americans drive even for short trips. About 25% of the trips Americans take are shorter than a mile which for many people is a walkable distance. But 75% of those trips are still made in a car. But, and here we're getting back to teleportation, what if we didn't need those cars anymore? What if we could teleport everywhere? Cars took over cities by 1930, and city planners started designing cities around the needs of cars, not people. If we could turn that off, what would our cities look like? 
Maybe we could make our cities attractive places to be in again, places where you can walk where you want to walk, where you can ride your bike, where you want to ride your bike, where people enjoy each other's company, where people don't have to be interrupted in their walk every block by yet another intersection full of vehicles, where you don't have vast parking lots making all the distances between all the destinations much bigger than than they would be without all those parking lots. Maybe all those things become possible. Imagine your town or city without cars or parking lots. What could be done with that space? What might that look like? Without having to clear forests for pavement, cities could protect their watersheds and aquifers. Plenty of research shows that keeping undeveloped land around cities has a huge positive impact on the cities themselves. From air quality to water quality to just the amount of water that a city has to access. Urban sprawl is also one of the reasons that the devastating California fires that are still burning as I record this have gotten so bad. Public health researchers have also looked into the ways that urban sprawl impacts people. More driving means more car accidents, air pollution, and pedestrian injuries. Imagine a world without road rage, without traffic jams, without billboards. But of course, history doesn't work linearly, right? You can't just scrub the little progress bar back in time and go back to 1910. In fact, teleportation companies, teledum maybe, would have to launch their own campaigns. They'd have to convince people again that the street is for people, that drivers should not have the right of way. Perhaps they would come up with some name for drivers, something like jaywalking. Someone who disregards the safety of others and insists on driving when they could teleport. If we didn't have to drive places, whole institutions would disappear. Gas stations and rest stops. If you've ever taken a road trip through the U.S., you've probably seen signs for various roadside attractions. Positioned along the highway amidst long stretches of nothingness. There's Wall Drug in South Dakota, the Corn Palace, also in South Dakota. There's South of the Border in South Carolina and the world's largest burger in Pennsylvania. You only really stop at these places because you're driving from one place to another and they happen to be on the way. And if we're just teleporting back and forth, then these places might disappear entirely. And in fact, we have proof that entire towns can dry up and disappear because of exactly this. Well, not exactly this, not teleportation. But when routes and highways change and no longer pass small towns, those small towns can just die. Take Route 66, for example, in the United States, which was officially named and numbered in 1926 and spanned from Chicago to Los Angeles. For decades, Route 66 was incredibly important for shipping and traveling across the United States. And along Route 66, all kinds of attractions and hotels and towns popped up to house and feed and entertain the people traversing the country. But by 1970, several four-lane modern highways had been built that took you where you needed to go a lot faster. In 1985, Route 66 was decommissioned. You can still drive it, and I've done it, and it's really cool, but it's slow going, and it's littered with ghost towns. Places that were once booming based on the steady stream of traffic and are now empty and abandoned. And I think this is actually one of the big sad things about teleportation as a means of transport. You're not going to stumble upon something. You're not going to be driving somewhere and see something weird and cool and be like, hey, let's go check that out. 
When you have to pick exactly where you're going to go and go exactly there immediately, there's no room for meandering or weird side trips on the way to something. Teleportation wouldn't just impact road trips, either. If we could teleport from stations near our homes to work, you would no longer need to live near where you work. This is a really fundamental shift, and it would likely change how cities and suburbs function. The, the person who lives in the city they work in and maybe commutes from one part of the city to another feels a kind of an identification with the city as home, while the person who commutes from the suburb to the city is actually sort of alarmed at the notion of the city's jurisdiction reaching them. They usually want to secede from the city uh, politically, or they want to resist annexation efforts from the city. Lots of scholars have written about the history of suburbia and the ways in which it serves to separate usually wealthier people from cities. Arguably, the city turns into a sort of colonized space where they make their wealth there and extract it and take it back to the suburbs, leaving the city as this sort of impoverished source of wealth for people who don't live in it anymore. The first commuter suburb in the United States was actually Brooklyn. In 1814, a ferry service started up between Brooklyn and Manhattan, which opened up the option for people to live in Brooklyn and work in Manhattan, or vice versa. The car obviously opened up commuting further, and by 2002, one in two Americans lived in the suburbs. Suburbs in the United States tend to be whiter, wealthier, and more conservative than cities. According to Pew Research data, white people are no longer the majority in most urban counties in the United States. But they are the majority in 90% of suburban and small metro counties and 89% of rural ones. So for this next section about how teleportation might change these demographic patterns, I was hoping to have an expert on. You know, like usual, where I interview people. But it turns out it's kind of hard to find someone who will talk about teleportation and demographics. So. You get me instead. Let's start with the question of how people choose where to live. This might seem obvious to you, but it's good to have data, right? According to a 2015 report from a London-based research firm, people reported three main factors in choosing where to live. Proximity to family, proximity to work, and housing cost. Teleportation immediately changes those first two, right? Assuming teleportation costs annually the same as owning and operating a car, then you could basically nix those first two things from your list. You don't have to be near your family or work. You can zip to them instantly when you want to. That last thing, though, housing cost, that's a lot trickier to figure out here. It's hard to say how teleportation might change the housing prices of certain cities. If all the people working in tech in San Francisco decide to move away now that they can teleport, does that mean housing gets cheaper in San Francisco? Where do those people go? I think some people would reorganize their lives if this was the reality of the world. Or maybe you already love where you live and you wouldn't move away even if you could. I know how I feel about this, but I wanted to hear from listeners about what they thought. So I asked for some input on social media and Patreon. And here is what people said to the question of if they didn't have to live where they worked, would they move? This is Justin. I'm a physician and I've often wondered about moving to a different country with a different healthcare payment model. I wonder how many of my frustrations with the American system are universal or how many would be solved by just getting paid differently for the work that I do. 
Nicholas Jackson said, in a second, somewhere to the upper Midwest that's better positioned for climate change and cheap. Jane Hartman Adame said, no, because I have an excellent medical care team established where I live, as well as a support network of family and friends. If I were in perfect health, I'm still not sure I would have a different answer. I'm lucky to work remotely, so technically I could live elsewhere. Hi, Rose. This is Sean. So if I didn't need to live near my job, I would probably move. I live in Orlando, Florida right now, and I really enjoy Florida for its weather, but the current political climate is not the best. And looking at global warming in the next 50 years, I'm going to need to move anyway because I'm going to be underwater. So yes, being not being uh, physically tied to a work location would be absolutely fantastic. Alex Daly McFarlane said, My dream remote working locations are probably Tbilisi or Bangkok. Both great cities in great regions, great cuisines. I would never run out of interesting things to do and vastly better climates than London, especially Bangkok. I already speak some Georgian, would learn Thai. My name is Reverend Kathy Randall Bryant, and I am a United Methodist pastor in the itinerant system. We move a lot. My job requires me to not only live in the place where I work, I have to live in that specific house. That creates for some interesting stories. It's for a good reason. Ministry happens best among the community one is serving. But in a rural community, sometimes the library and the grocery store are further away than I'd like. If I could live anywhere, I'd move to a city where I could have access to excellent public transit and where there are people who don't look like me, so I could build friendships that help me grow. So here's what I think might happen. And We're way out in no man's land here talking about teleportation as cheap as driving a car, but let's just go with it. I think some people will choose to live in places closer to their families, biological or chosen. Even with teleportation, being able to just walk down the street to see someone you love is amazing. But beyond that, I think people will choose to live in communities of people that are like them. Not necessarily demographically, although I think maybe that too, but really philosophically. I think about this a lot in terms of the way that fake news is proliferating in the world, especially in America. I have seen these signs in people's yards near where I live that are political statement signs. They say, quote, in this house we believe, and then there's a list of things, you know, Black Lives Matter, women's rights are human rights, no human is illegal, science is real, etc., etc., The thing that's interesting to me about these signs isn't the political messaging that follows, but instead that first line, in this house we believe. These signs set a tone. They say that on this property, in this house, these are the facts. And I think that's the kind of ideological grouping we would see if people could choose to live wherever they want without having to be near a job. People would pick climates they like, and they'd pick the style of house they like, and they'd pick a community they like. We talked about this a little bit on our fake news episode way back in 2016. I'm going to play a clip from that episode since it kind of makes this point. So here's Brooke Burrell, a science journalist and the author of The Chicago Guide to Fact-Checking. And she's talking about what might happen if we lose our grip on what is real and what isn't. I don't know. It's hard to even picture. I mean, I guess you just will have, you can already see these divisions across the U.S. and across the world, right? Do we just get into tighter and tighter bubbles that we we even start, we stop, you know, actually physically going beyond those boundaries because it's actually quite dangerous for us to interact with these other people because they see each each other as a threat or we're going into these bubbles of, you know, 
totally unvaccinated populations that are going to give us all of you know the measles or whatever. I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, it, will we see some sort of uh, physical bubbles even more so than we do now that are based on these information bubbles? Like, will people be afraid to even travel to these different places? I don't know. With teleportation, you wouldn't even have to travel through spaces that might contain people you didn't want to see or interact with. The rich could even better ignore the poor. Programmers wouldn't even have to see the unhoused living in encampment communities in San Francisco. This has an upside, right? Marginalized people wouldn't have to physically travel through spaces that are unsafe for them. But eliminating travel and eliminating the need to interact with people in those in-between spaces, that also seems pretty dystopian. Thankfully, or not thankfully, depending on how all of this sounds to you, it's never going to happen. Because teleportation of humans is impossible. So we should be good to each other, fight for better urban development and conditions where we are, take the weird side road, and always try the churros from the lady with the cart. I guarantee they are delicious. If you have thoughts about where you would live in a world of teleportation, I would love to hear them. You can send a voice memo to info at flashforwardpod.com or leave a voicemail to 347-927-1425. Thanks to our guests this week. You can find more of Matt's work at The Nib or mattlub.com. That's M-A-T-T-L-U-B.com. You can read more about the Foundational Questions Institute at fqxi.org. You can hear more from Zia on the FQXI podcast. And you can read more about the history of the car and city in Peter's book, Fighting Traffic, The Dawn of the Motor Age in the American City. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hussalonia. The teleportation attendant from the future was played by Tamara Krinsky. Tamara is the host of the science and technology show Tomorrow's World Today, which you can watch on Amazon right now. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email me there too. If you are right, I will send you something cool. And a tip for people who wonder what the heck I'm talking about every time I say this, can never find the hidden references, here is a tip. Don't skip the ads. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that too. Head to flashforwardpod.com support for more about how to give. But if that's not in the cards for you, you can head to Apple Podcasts and leave a nice review. Or just tell your friends about the show. That really does help. That's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one. <laughs>